1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirms with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. This is the word of God. Thank you, Katie. And good morning, church. Uh, As it's been said already, we do miss you uh, so very much. I do believe, though, at this time, this is where we can just be reminded that what we have through the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit actually transcends distance. Uh, We are the body of Christ, whether we are present gathered or scattered. We are the family of God because it is a bond through the blood of Jesus. It is a bond by the power of the Holy Spirit. And like Paul says in the book of Romans, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Now, of course, there are practical parts to that, and we do need to be reaching out to one another and checking in with one another um, and seeing how one another are doing so that we can minister to one another's needs. But we do have... um, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and there is nothing that can separate us from one another and from God because of that. Now, do me a favor. Before we get into this week's teaching, uh, send one member of your family uh, or a roommate, or maybe I'm talking to you. Go grab some bread or maybe some crackers and a little bit of juice or wine and just enough for each person because at the end of our service today, we're going to take communion. Parents, I don't uh, think there's anything in Scripture that would forbid your children from taking communion, even if they don't understand. Actually, I would say that Scripture would encourage you to disciple your child into this. And so maybe this morning you can walk your kids through this. I'll leave that up to you. But back to our study. So a few weeks back, we began a series that we're calling Essential Church. And we did this because at this moment, many of us are despairing and lamenting the loss of what the church had become or has become in in the West. When we think of church, we think of going to a building. We think of services that we are participating in or maybe even just consuming. We're thinking about gathering. We're thinking about loud worship. We're thinking about Sunday school. We're thinking in these ways. We're not really thinking about our personal identity. We're not thinking about a people. We're thinking about a place. And I do believe that this moment of COVID-19 and having the church, the whole world sheltering in place, allows us this moment to really step back and ask essential questions like, what is the church? What does it mean to be the people of God? And as we do that, I really believe that we can get back to our calling and our essential identity as the people of God. And so we've been doing this for a number of weeks. We've been looking at the early church. In Acts 2.42, we see that the apostles' doctrine, that the 
breaking of bread and uh, fellowship and the prayers, that these were essential to the life of the early church. But one thing we also notice about the early church is that this was a dynamic community that was able to adapt and change just to the different cultural um, conditions that they found themselves in, whether this was, you know, the Lord adding to the church, or this was persecution, or this was the scattering of the church, or the moving of the Holy Spirit. The church was able to be adaptable and yet exceedingly fruitful, and that's what we really desire as God's people. We're not stuck to a building. We're not stuck to a Sunday morning gathering, but we are stuck to Jesus, and we're stuck to his mission, and we're going to stay on Jesus's mission no matter what the terrain is. And so we believe by looking, by going back and looking at the church, this will give us vision for the way forward. And we've been using this term liturgy kind of to understand this situation. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how liturgy is bridge building. It's a work that's, it was commonly used in the Greek world as a um, communal work. It was something that was done by the people and for the people. And it was often the way that they would refer to maybe building a city well or a, a city bridge, something that benefited everyone, but it took everybody's participation. Well, the church itself had a liturgy, and we believe that that was what we find in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And it was by practicing this liturgy, every one of them doing their part, centering their lives on these essentials, that they were able to adapt, being flexible and fruitful in the midst of these constant changes. And so we've been looking at this for a number of weeks. And last week, if you were able to listen in, we were talking about how the church constantly centered its life around the life of Jesus. And we not just his story as we looked at in the first week, but Jesus's posture. Jesus was a servant. Jesus was others-oriented. He was sacrificial in everything that he did. And I summarized it this way. I said, the Jesus way of life is a determination that when I spend time with someone, that individual goes away with a sense of being refreshed, loved, heard, and helped as though they had been spending time with Jesus himself. See, this is what the early church was about, not just about the Jesus story, but about the Jesus way of life. They wanted to be like Jesus. They wanted to imitate him. And they wanted people even around them outside of their community to know Jesus through their lives. They wanted to be that reflection of Jesus. And so the church practiced this way with one another. And of course, that sent them out into the culture to be testimonies and witnesses of the life of Jesus. Now, as we go on in this liturgy, these essential elements to the life of the early church, we find that the breaking of bread was central to their gathering. This was part of their liturgy, or another way I like to, to refer to it as the Jesus meal. Now, in Acts 2, Luke highlights the breaking of bread in this list of essential elements of the early church's life. And of course, the breaking of bread refers to the fact that, first of all, the church was communal. They gathered together often, even daily, to eat together. 
we talked about this last week, but we're told that they ate their bread with generosity and simplicity, that they shared their meals, they shared their table together. The church was like a family, but more importantly, it wasn't that they were just like a family, but it was that this family was centered around the gospel. It was a gospel-centered family, a gospel community. Luke calling this the breaking of bread is most definitely a reference to the practice of remembering the last meal that Jesus ate with his disciples. So it wasn't just the fact that they had dinner together or shared food together, but that the idea here is that they did eat together, but the middle of that, the essential element, the central figure or moment of that meal was remembering Jesus's last meal with his disciples. Remember, that was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. It's the meal that we call the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion. And Jesus told his disciples to Observe this meal in remembrance of him. So when the church gathered, the center of their attention was always the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus for their sakes. The center of their attention was God's reconciling, giving, and forgiving love. The practice itself was most likely very different than the way we observe the Lord's Supper today. I mean, I'm sitting here, I have a Paper plate, little cracker on it, and a jar of Welch's grape juice, right? This is not what the church was doing. Theirs was an actual meal, right? They would sit down and, and enjoy one another's fellowship and check in with one another and listen to one another and talk about Jesus and talk about their struggles and these things. And as the meal would go on, at some point in time, one person would take the bread and break it, distribute it. And all of a sudden, the, the center was on Jesus's sacrificial life for us. His body was broken. Take this. Remember, be thankful. And then, of course, it was a communal glass of wine, and it was passed around the table, and everyone there was reminded of the shed blood of Jesus that cleanses them from sin. They were reminded of the blood of the new covenant, that God had done a new thing, that God had altered the course of history through the life, death, and resurrection. It was something that was so unifying. They were all eating the same bread. They were all drinking the same cup. It was a community saying, Jesus, you died so we can live. It was the community saying, you died so we could become partakers of the kingdom of God. It was the community saying, Jesus, you gave your life so we could be members of God's family. So, This was essential to the life of the early church. This was a common practice. They devoted themselves, Luke says, to the breaking of bread. So what is this liturgical meal for? Or how do we make a liturgy of this meal? What is it meant to do for the church? Well, the Lord's Supper, or communion, helps the church remain Christ-centered. Every week we gather we are reminded, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, and be grateful. Every week we are reminded, this is my blood shed for you and for all human beings for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, and when you do, remember me. Remember me. 
But what does it mean to remember? Is it just that we sit and, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah. It's a great guy. You know, or like just casually, like, oh yeah, like that time we all hung out. It's, is it a, a remembering like that? Obviously it's not. It's something deeper than that. And whenever scripture uses this term to remember, it's usually tied to a covenant sign or ceremony. And so because of that, remembrance becomes a vibrant, powerful, and participatory concept where the people who are remembering recalibrate their lives according to what's being remembered. Of course, this is what Jesus is asking of the church, saying when you gather, people, don't forget my sacrificial death for you. Don't forget the demonstration of my great love for you. Don't forget that I forgave you a great, great debt. Never forget this. By recalibrating our lives often by the Jesus meal then, we become a community centered around Jesus' self-sacrificial act, and this creates a dynamic of forgiveness and reconciliation. The meal becomes a monument of the new covenant. Now, I've noticed that in churches where communion is not central to the gathering, other aspects of Christianity will take the place of what this meal is meant to do. I've noticed that people, at least people who grew up in the church, get baptized again and again. Or maybe you grew up in a church where they do what's called an altar call, where at the end of the service, you know, there's an appeal to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you. You're encouraged to receive that. And so I know many people who grew up in the church, and they said, I have been saved many times. I have dedicated my life or given my life to Jesus many, many times. I think it's really interesting to note that with, even within the church, we long for this renewal We long to be recalibrated. We want a monument. We want a place to go. We want to to come to a table. And see, Jesus has actually given this gift to his church. He says, do this continually and remember me. Come to this table and be renewed. Come to this table and be recalibrated by my love for you. Be recalibrated by my sacrifice for you. Be recalibrated by my forgiveness that I freely showed to you. And that is a huge part of what this meal is meant to do, to recenter our lives around the sacrifice of Jesus for us and for the world. His reconciling, giving, and forgiving love. This meal also helps the church remain gospel-centered in the most down-to-earth practical way. I was thinking through this this week, and I was thinking how this meal, if I allow it to, if I really do that work of remembering, reminds me of how desperately I personally need the gospel. It reminds me that I need to be forgiven, It reminds me that I had to be rescued by God, that there was a barrier between me and God, and so I had to be reconciled. And that wasn't just, didn't take just an introduction by Jesus. It took his broken body. It took the life of the Son of God to do that. I'm reminded of the cost. 
of forgiveness, that forgiveness, that reconciliation is costly. It reminds me and reminds you that the world and our own lives are broken. We, of all people, the church, should expect people to mess up. We should expect people to blow it, to get it wrong. We should expect people to sin, to hurt, and disappoint us. I find often that Christians, though, are some of the most bitter people. How is that? When this meal is supposed to be central to our lives, that we have been forgiven. Remember the story that Jesus told of the unforgiving servant. He had been forgiven a huge amount of debt freely by this king, and yet he goes out and finds this guy who owes him, you know, $100. Pay me what you owe me. I'm going to throw you in prison. I'm going to go after your family. I'm going to take every last cent from you. And of course, the king finds out about it, and he says, you wicked servant, I freely forgave you, and you would not forgive this man this small debt. The church is supposed to be a forgiven and forgiving people. And this meal is meant to drive this deep into our hearts. You know, church, we of all people, God's people, we should be resilient when it comes to sin. We should be. You know, Grace and I, we've been through a lot in our short life, uh, married life, just in, in pastoral ministry. And something that we often pray is, God, make our skin thicker, but make our hearts softer times that we're disappointed, times that we've been hurt. That's our prayer continually. We don't want to get bitter. We don't want to get hard. And we want our hearts to be bigger because we understand more and more as the years goes on the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of the love of God towards us personally. So we should expect people to blow it, to sin, to hurt, and to disappoint us. This meal reminds us of that, but it simultaneously reminds me and reminds you that Jesus paid for sin. He paid for our rebellion against God at the cross. And he made reconciliation for us and he has brought us into a family of forgiveness. That'd be amazing if we thought of ourselves that way. A forgiving family. What's this, what, what's this group about? This is a family of forgiveness. That's what this is. It's a family of forgiveness where love covers a multitude of sin. It's a family of forgiveness where mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a family of forgiveness where sin might abound, grace abounds much, much more. You can really see how this is a liturgical act in the sense that we've been talking about through this series. Communion is something done by each of us. Taking the little piece of bread, eating it, right? But it's not about me. It's about us, right? We're all breaking from one loaf and it's going into all of us. We're one family. We're all drinking from the same cup, so to speak, or I guess the same jug that we poured into the little cups, right? We're all drinking from the same jug. It's not about me. It's about us. It's not just about my sin. It's about us and our sin being forgiven. It's about this family, God's family, and us living as one reconciled, holy body. In this family that centers around the sacrificial gift of Jesus, we forgive. 
We don't hold on to grudges or repay people. Jesus dealt with that at the cross. We make reconciliation. We don't just move on or move away because Jesus made cosmic reconciliation at the cross. We put our own sin, our failures, and the sins and failures of others to Jesus' account. We don't have to kill one another and repay one another. Jesus already paid the price. Jesus is the sin eater. He, it can, the buck can stop with Jesus. This liturgy of communion reminds us that following Jesus means that we are people of the cross, that we are a cruciform community. Of course, it's in moments where we are truly hurt and sinned against by others that the work of Jesus' cross can become very real and meaningful to us. What do I mean by that? Well, in forgiveness, as we, as we all know, I have to die to my desire for vengeance. I have to die to my desire for justice or for self-justification. I have to nail it to the cross. I have to nail my desire to the cross. And doing that is not easy or small. It's a kind of death, truly. To let that thing go, to give it over to the Lord. But I believe that in doing this, in dying to our desires, in dying to our will, in dying to our sense of justice or self-justification, in doing this, practicing this, we learn the way of Jesus. In so doing, we, come, we become more and more like him. I love this it's, um, quote from Ray Ortland Jr. He says this, the only churches that will make an impact in this generation are those that astonish the world with a capacity for love, sacrifice, and forgiveness obviously transcends self-interest, then it really does look like Jesus has come to town. That's it. Capacity for love, sacrifice, and forgiveness that transcends self-interest. That's the way of Jesus. That's what it looks like to be shaped by the cross of Jesus or what it looks like to be shaped by this meal. So does our forgiveness sacrifice and generosity astonish others? Does the forgiveness, sacrifice, and generosity of the church astonish the world? Does it call people that know you to question or wonder, what kind of love is this? What kind of people are these people that forgive like this, that sacrifice like this, that love like this? You know, I often hear people say about this church community, I'm so glad to be part of a community that takes care of each other. I have no idea what other people do. I, I have no idea what it, what it would be like to go through COVID or what it would be like to go through the fires without a community. But how powerful and earth-shattering to be able to say, I'm so glad to be part of a community that truly forgives one another. 
a community of reconciliation. You know, we think about the culture that we're living in, and I've talked about this before, but we are still living in this me too culture, right? Where you can find dirt on anyone. It doesn't matter how long ago this is, how much someone has changed or altered their course or repented or whatever you want to call it. We want to pay people back for their sins. We want to publicly expose them. We want to strip them from all honor. But I have yet to see our culture actually do the work of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, I'm not talking about the the other end of those who have been abusers. I'm not talking about their personal responsibility in those because that's nuanced, right? But I'm just talking generally. Our world does not know how to forgive. This world is cruel. This world is out for vengeance. It is not out for reconciliation. It is radical to follow the way of Jesus then. It is radical to be someone who pursues forgiveness, to be someone who pursues peace, and someone who makes reconciliation. And I truly believe that we have this amazing opportunity right now in our time, in this cultural moment, to shine the light of Christ into the culture by being a community that forgives by being a community that reconciles. It doesn't mean we all have to be best friends, but it does mean that we nail our sin and the sins of others, that we nail it to the cross, and we can allow people to get up with dignity and continue on with their lives. I'll close with um, just a prayer. And then after that, you can just feel free to take the bread and the cup or just do that maybe during the time that we dedicate towards worship. But I wrote out a prayer, and so I'm just going to read it. So if you just join me. Jesus, this morning, we come to your table. We come to the table that you have, invite us to, you have invited us to, to have a little meal with you. And the table is set, and everything has been provided by you. The bread is here and it represents your body that's been broken for us. The cup is here and it represents your blood being shed for the forgiveness of our sins and the new covenant in which we stand. And Lord, may this simple act of faith cleanse our hearts this morning. Lord, you have forgiven us. The work of the cross is sufficient, Lord, but we, Lord, we've gotten dirty throughout the week. Lord, um, Like that scene with Peter in the upper room, Lord, our feet need to be washed. We need to be cleansed by you. We need to be renewed. We need to be reoriented. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that. In this simple act of faith, cleanse our hearts. May we return to you fully, knowing that you are full of grace and truth. May we strive always to be a forgiving and reconciled family. And Lord, send us out to live out your love, forgiveness, and reconciliation to the bitter, unforgiving, and lost of humanity. Forgiven so that I can forgive, be it unto me.